This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Whether class or race is the more important factor in modern politics is a question right at the heart of recent history's most contentious debates. Among groups who should readily find common ground, there is little agreement. To escape this deadlock, Assad Hader turns to the rich legacies of the black freedom struggle. Drawing on the words and deeds of black revolutionary theorists, he argues that identity politics, as we have come to know it, is not synonymous with anti-racism, but instead amounts to the neutralization of its movements. It marks a retreat from the crucial passage of identity to solidarity, and from individual recognition to the collective struggle against an oppressive social structure. Weaving together autobiographical reflection, historical analysis, and theoretical exegesis, mistaken identity is a passionate call for a new practice of politics beyond colorblind chauvinism and the ideology of race. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Peace has broken out across the Korean Peninsula. Or, at least, the odds that Donald Trump will blow up the world have gone down just a bit, at least temporarily. Yes, Trump is the one who pushed us way too close to the brink of nuclear war. And yes, he likely sought peace with Kim Jong-un because he loves wins, whatever their political or ideological content. But wow has the liberal reaction been revealing. According to the mindset that pervades the liberal media and political elite, a move towards peace with North Korea is bad because Trump is bad. Or perhaps even worse yet, it's bad because the national security state conventional wisdom that has governed Washington under both major parties for so long, the very people who have brought us endless war almost everywhere, says that it's bad. It's clearer than ever that the task of the left is to find a way out of this ideological closed circuit of the liberal versus Trump foreign policy debate, and, when we win power, to shut down its warmongering for good. My guest today is Stephen Wertheim, making his second appearance on the show. We're going to talk about North Korea, the Iran deal, the G7 blow-up, and what this all says about Trump and about his liberal and national security state establishment detractors. Before we get rolling, a lot of listeners treat the show like a book club of sorts, which is cool. And a lot of people for a long time were asking me for more information on how to do future research and readings and whatnot on the various topics we discuss here on the show. And so I created a weekly newsletter. It's available to our supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. So support the show and check the newsletter out. Oh, and I wanted to let you know that I'm joining the Watson Institute at Brown University as a visiting fellow in international and public affairs starting on July 1st. 
I already record the dig at Brown, and the idea behind this fellowship is that I will now use Brown's institutional resources to host events with activists and intellectuals working to understand the world and to transform it. It should be pretty great and will dovetail quite nicely with the show. But one thing for all of you current and prospective Patreon supporters, I want to emphasize that this is not a paid job except for a few small stipends I will receive for organizing a few podcast how-to sessions. In other words, this podcast, i.e. your donations on Patreon, is still my main source of income. And don't worry, Brown is not ripping me off. I don't have to do work for them, really. It's just an opportunity and a position from which I can better expand this podcast's mission. So stay tuned for future event announcements. Many of these events will no doubt be broadcast here on the pod. Okay, here's Stephen Wertheim, a lecturer in American and international history at Burbeck, University of London, who has written essays on current affairs in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. Stephen Wertheim, welcome back to The Dig. Oh, thanks for having me back. There has been a lot of foreign policy news recently, obviously. The the problem, it feels like there is literally no subject that the mainstream media can actively make you understand less of than, than this mm. one. Yeah, I think I do think that you get dumber. You get dumber as you listen more. So the purpose of this episode is to, at the very least, not become more dumb and perhaps even become smarter. And I want to start with the big one, which is Trump met Kim Jong-un, and they came to some sort of tentative and very general accord, which at a minimum seems to include a suspension of joint U.S.-South Korea military exercises on the peninsula. And a lot of establishment commentators responded by saying that Trump got played. Perhaps he did because he's a big dummy about anything that requires reading or science. I think liberals are no doubt right that what most interests Trump is scoring some kind of win regardless of its substance. But what I really don't get and want to ask you about, about the liberal and national security establishment response, is that if this accord, however general, however substanceless, if it lowers the chance of armed conflict between nuclear powers— isn't that a good thing? Yes, I, I dare say I think it is a good thing. So I should say first that a wide range of outcomes with North Korea still remain very plausible. It's all the way from war on the Korean Peninsula, if not beyond, to the normalization of relations with North Korea. <laughs> but as you suggest, uh, and yeah, that's a, that's a wide range. But there was a basic problem uh, coming into the summit that a lot of the mainstream reaction ignored in analyzing the Singapore summit. And that is very simply that the United States and North Korea had contradictory positions. The United States insisted that the North could not have a nuclear weapons capability and had to totally, verifiably, irreversibly give up its nuclear weapons. Compare that with the North and its position it had developed a nuclear capability, and as most uh, mainstream experts admit, you know that made good sense for the Kim regime, which seemed to have little reason to give up its nuclear weapons. So we have a fundamental contradiction. How is that going to be resolved if it won't be resolved in war? 
So it seems to me that the summit, while far from being conclusive in showing a way out of the stalemate, did suggest a path. And I think that that is that Trump, whether intentionally or not, and probably not, uh, is going to go down a path by which the United States accepts North Korea as a de facto nuclear weapon state, probably with a reduced arsenal, probably not doing much, if any, testing. Um, but it does seem as though Trump, with all of his talk of how now there is no threat from North Korea, which is absurd if you believed, as Trump claimed pre-summit, that there was a grave threat. But nevertheless, it seems as though Trump is leading the United States, or at least his part of the political right, down that path. Now, quite possibly, that's not what Trump intends to do, but maybe that by the time sanctions are lifted and North Korea achieves a wide international recognition, a process that's already starting, it just won't make much sense for the United States to impose sanctions or threaten war against North Korea for still possessing some nuclear weapons capability. Uh, as I say, this gambit, if it is Trump's gambit, might fail. In fact, it has a decent chance of failing. Uh, Trump himself may not be committed to it. He could turn on a dime and he could be outflanked on the right, uh, whether that's by Republicans or by Democrats, who might charge that North Korea uh, is reneging on its agreement. So just as Trump was carping from the sidelines about the Iran deal when Obama concluded it, his successor may be complaining now and may undo uh, the deal that Trump has has struck with Kim. How I see it is that North Korea is un, unlikely to denuclearize because what's very seldom acknowledged in the U.S. media is that there might have been some rationality for the re, behind the reason that they developed a nuclear weapons program in the first place, which is so that they wouldn't become another Iraq or Libya. It seems to me that the biggest risk here is not that this is an agreement that will fail to enforce denuclearization on North Korea because that seems unlikely in the short term, you know, with with any with even like a, you know, a really great left wing anti-war president doing the negotiating. But but more that that Trump blows up the agreement at some point and doubles down on his bellicosity as a result. A totally real possibility. It should surprise no one. It will surprise a lot of people if that happens, but it, it really should not. So I think, you know, we should all be on guard for that kind of possibility. On the other hand, uh, he did. I think that he um, senses that he looked statesmanlike in the summit. And if he can say that he has brought peace in some even symbolic capacity, that could be a uh, winning issue for him in a presidential election. So maybe that factor will matter at least for the next couple of years. Which is ironic because the big liberal and national security state establishment criticism of the negotiations is that it elevated or legitimated or normalized Kim Jong-un when you could say the same thing about the what it did for Trump. There were so many glaring contradictions in the commentary around the Singapore summit. I mean, somebody could do a dissertation just on this few days worth of commentary. So you have the same group of people who have constantly attacked Trump for being unfit and unpresidential 
then criticizing the Singapore summit for giving Kim Jong-un the incredible honor of meeting with the U.S. president, who, by the way, is Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, And to your earlier question, like, a number of commentators, I've actually been impressed in a sense by the way, you know, if you read the New York Times opinion page, you can see that a number of commentators recognize that Kim may have been quite rational to pursue nuclear weapons to ensure the survival of regime, his, his, his regime. And they're aware that the U.S. has a credibility problem, given the way uh, uh, previous administrations have treated Libya, which gave up its nuclear weapons, or Iraq, uh, which did not have nuclear weapons and then was uh, invaded. Uh, and obviously now Trump's dealings with Iran. Yeah, like the best way to not get invaded over allegations of possessing weapons of mass mass destruction is to actually possess those weapons of mass destruction. So I think a lot of people recognize that. And yet there's still this reflex to say, yeah, Kim might be rational, but he's also an evil, crazed dictator who is the enemy and just doesn't deserve to meet with a U.S. president. So to me... Maybe these contradictions are themselves somewhat normal, but I think they are starker at this moment than they usually are. Even when you know one listens to political commentary briefly on CNN, it seems like um, the foreign policy debate is unsettled. One thing that seems to underline a lot of it, at least implicitly, is the way that the that a lot of foreign policy journalists take the perspective of the U.S. government. So the article Mm -hmm. opens by sort of asking the question of, you know, what is the threat posed by North Korea? How credible is the North Korean regime? And it's not like there's specific factual errors made in these stories necessarily, but this ingrained and unacknowledged bias, which is that they're taking on the subject from the perspective of the U.S. government as though... You know, the the U.S. doesn't have credibility issues, especially with Donald Trump at the helm, does not pose a threat to world peace as well. I imagine this is a a longstanding problem with foreign policy journalism. I certainly think it is. This much isn't new. I think there are two structural factors involved. One is the ideology of American exceptionalism, which tends to see the United States as the defining agent of what happens in the world. And so you know, whether it's Obama or Trump, um, whoever is the U.S. president will be credited with good things that happen in the world and blamed for bad things that happened in the world, regardless of whether their role is, in fact. Um, uh, and then there's the fact that the United States, um, there are very few the United States matters more to the rest of the world than the rest of the world matters to the United States. And that, too, has been a, a longstanding reality. So the number of Americans who have a very clear stake in outcomes uh, beyond the borders of the United States, certainly beyond North America, uh, is a fairly small one. Uh, And so that's, I think, the sort of general, two general causes of this problem. I do think that there's something a little different about this moment because uh, it's hard to maintain a kind of U.S.-centric line when... um, Donald Trump is the U.S. president, <laughs> to put it. And, and that's, you know, both the sort of odious figure of Trump, 
which disrupts the exceptionalist story, but also his obvious disarray uh, procedurally. So, you know, if we take the North Korea diplomacy, obviously so much of the work uh, that led there was not so much done by the Trump administration as by the Koreans themselves, the governments of the North and the South. And that brings me to another thing that I wanted to ask you about is just the way, I mean, certainly when when Moon um, had his summit with with Kim Jong-un, that the Moon, the South Korean president, that 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 was certainly covered. That was historic. But in the broader sweep of the coverage of the the crisis on the Korean Peninsula and of U.S. North Korean relations, South Korea is really written out of this. And if anyone has really played a savvy and sort of quiet role in bringing these two incredibly bizarre sociopaths to the negotiating table, i.e. Kim and Trump, I mean, it's got to be Moon. But he, but he he is not front and center in American media coverage. This is exactly what's been missing uh, from the commentary the primary importance of Koreans themselves. Uh, President Moon Jae-in has been pushing for dialogue with North Korea ever since he took office uh, about a year ago. And I mean, it's very obvious even from the text of the Singapore summit, it mostly reaffirmed uh, the earlier agreement between the two presidents of the Koreas. Uh, That's the agreement that Moon and Kim reached uh, a little over a month prior to the Singapore summit. So it's really unfortunate that uh, the agency of the Koreans hasn't been emphasized. And then there's North Korea. And I think if, you know, when I talk to um, many Americans, I think that they assume, even if they're Trump opponents, uh, really strong Trump opponents, they assume that, yeah, Trump's bluster, the fire and fury talk, it must have uh, affected North Korea. You know, we don't know the the truth. We won't know for some time if we ever do get into those North Korean archives. But I doubt that it made much difference. I think the better assumption, based on what we know, uh, is that the North completed its uh, nuclear capability to its satisfaction, so it felt secure. Yeah. Uh, it saw an opening with Moon, which Moon actively cultivated. Yep. And now the North is using its nukes to get to achieve political and diplomatic goals. And economic, so, yes, and economic yes, goals. Absolutely. So yes, the 76 million people who live in the two Koreas, uh, they matter. And to, to cap it off, a lot of the anti-Trump foreign policy commentators uh, who have been criticizing the Singapore summit have done so in the name of the need to uphold alliances, specifically the alliance uh, with South Korea and the alliance with Japan. This but constant statement this that we've sold strange. out South Korea by that Trump sold out South Korea by making this deal with Kim, which seems an utterly bizarre conclusion to make. Right. The actual people and the government of South Korea are very supportive of where things have been going, including the Singapore summit, from, from what I can tell. Uh, certainly the number that supported the North-South agreement recently was overwhelming in the 80s in a a poll. So I think that these criticisms in the name of the liberal international order or the alliances 
these are fetishizations of the alliances. Mm -hmm. uh, the alliances have become an abstraction. I want to talk about a few specific features of the liberal and national security state establishment criticism of the North Korea Accord. One that we've touched on already is, you know, in this this happened from the very get-go when the meeting, the summit was first announced, uh, and Nicholas Kristof in the Times uh, phrased it like so, that it strikes me as a dangerous gamble and a bad idea. I'm afraid that North Korea may be playing Trump and that Trump in turn may be playing us because he wrote a face-to-face -face meeting with just, he wrote, quote, give, uh, it would give, quote, North Korea what it has long craved, the respect and legitimacy that comes from the North Korean leader standing as an equal beside the American president. We've talked about this a little, but I wanted to ask you, where does this conventional wisdom that the causes of international peace, justice, human rights, whatever good thing, that it's well served by marginalizing North Korea as a pariah state? I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, there's the cult. One, one, one historical example that I think is looming in the background here is that of containment. Uh, and the idea that somehow containing the Soviet Union and communism won the Cold War eventually. That's a very simplistic and possibly wrong narrative. But, um, you know, that is a that was the working assumption uh, of so many who proved victorious in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so from there, we get the idea of rogue states that need to be isolated, and then the axis of evil and so forth. And North Korea fits in there. So it's no longer bad quite because it's a communist regime, but it's bad because it's brutal, it's a human rights abuser, uh, and it's generally an enemy. Um, I think, though, the U.S. foreign policy commentariat, when it criticizes uh, U.S. diplomacy, what is actually seemingly so far a constructive effort of U.S. diplomacy, they're showing their Trumpian stripes. In effect, criticizing Trump for not being Trumpian enough because he let North Korea and China win and the United States lose. So what people like Kristoff here reflect is they seem to insist on thinking in zero-sum terms about any particular agreement while insisting that in general, the interests of the United States are those of the world. Now, Trump inverts that relationship precisely. Uh, famously, he often speaks of the United States generally pitted against the world. And that could be anyone. That could be traditional enemies and traditional allies. But now he is showing that he may also be capable of making a kind of win-win deal. Uh, so that's a strange kind of difference between Trump and mainstream foreign policy commentators, but also a similarity in that they both they both are perfectly willing to speak in zero-sum terms, who won and who lost. It's just whether they apply that to a particular situation or use it as general kind of rhetoric. Yeah, the, the national security state establishment defenders of the, the liberal international order, which there was a uh, New York Times Sunday Review column by Corey Shake on recently that I that I saw you critiquing on on Twitter wisely. Their stated ideology is that the the beautiful thing about the Pax Americana is that's what is in 
the interests of the U.S. empire is also in the interests of those who are subject to it. But then when when Trump com- confronts him with them with this deal, they're forced to revert to a position where they have to show their cards and say, no, this is that we actually, like Trump, believe this is a zero-sum game and we got played. North Korea won. Maddow really jumped the shark on this one. The U.S. government, the Trump administration insisted that there would be no concessions to North Korea unless they had complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, right? They'd have to do that before the U.S. gave them anything. They didn't give any of that. They didn't even promise to do it. And they got an end to U.S. joint military exercises with South Korea? One of the things they want most in the world that they've been trying to get for decades? How'd they, why'd why'd they get that? Why did Trump give that to them? He didn't apparently negotiate it with anybody else, even in the U.S. government or U.S. military. He just himself gave it away. Why did he do that? You know who else wants the U.S. to stop its joint military exercises with South Korea? Uh, China, naturally, sees itself as the great power in the region and increasingly in the world. They definitely see North Korea as not just a troublesome neighbor, but uh, a neighbor that is squarely within their sphere of exclusive influence from China's perspective, if they're supposed to be foreign troops circulating in that part of the world, they ought to be Chinese troops and not anybody else's. China, for years, has advocated that the U.S. stop these joint military exercises with South Korea. The other entity that really wants the U.S. to stop its joint military exercises with South Korea, the other country that has been increasingly insistent that those exercises are provocations and they must stop, the country who has been speaking out more and more on that over the last couple of years, specifically is North Korea's other abutter. Um, here's, here's Russia, March of 2016, expressing their opposition to South Korean U.S. military exercises. Well, that seems to be par for the course for Maddow. But yeah, I mean, the liberal international order phrase, I think you've put your finger on something that is significant. This is a phrase that I think has really never been rolled out before except in the last few years, specifically in opposition to Donald Trump. Uh, And it's now coming out under uh, criticism. Uh, Patrick Porter, for example, a scholar wrote uh, a very hard hitting piece uh, for the Cato Institute that's uh, available online, uh, addressing what he considers to be a myth of the liberal international order. Uh, Thomas Meany and I wrote a piece questioning in the New York Times a few months ago questioning, among other things, the the strategic value of deploying such an abstract phrase like liberal international order. So many experts I talk to don't know what that is. And so how many voters in Ohio are going to know what that is and find that to be more resident than uh, a slogan like America first? So I think, you know, among, among other things, um, I'm interested in the way that American foreign policy experts and commentators who are in the mainstream, they seem to have been hoisted on their own petard. They won so thoroughly in the 1990s um, that they've kind of forgotten how to do politics. Uh, And I think that op-ed is an example of that. I don't think it's something that would resonate very far, in addition to obviously romanticizing the so-called U.S.-led Uh, liberal international order, um, which we can see those who romanticize it when it comes to a concrete situation actually seem to be looking to see who's won, 
who's lost and implicitly suggesting that maybe greater hostilities that could put the United States and North Korea on a path toward war would be better than than what we see now. Are you suggesting that a 2020 ticket with Mike Bloomberg and Bill Kristol wouldn't swing Ohio back away from Trump? I'm suggesting that they could try. (laughs) Not much harm in it. One really uh, standout gem in this Sunday review by Corey Shockey is Shockey writes, democracies fight lots of wars, but they do not fight other democracies. The wars they fight are about enlarging the perimeter of security and prosperity, expanding and consolidating the liberal order. What's that all about? Well, that seems to be a statement that the lib- in defense of the liberal order, uh, the United States as its self-appointed guardian will be going to war to enlarge, as she writes, the perimeter of security and prosperity. So uh, it suggests that the liberal order is a recipe for war. Yeah, it's an interesting sentence to or two to right amidst this debate over North Korea, for sure. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes and revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists and elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And Socialism 2018 will feature leaders of the teacher strikes that have swept through the so-called red states this spring. Teachers from West Virginia to Puerto Rico to Arizona will speak on two panels in Friday night's main plenary. Don't miss this opportunity to learn about the power of organized workers from rank-and-file leaders across the country. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Worker, and by Jacobin. And it will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current Teachers' Rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great place to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. It seemed like the U.S. was getting the better of the deal since Iran had curbed its nuclear program, but the economic relief, as insofar as I've read, was pretty underwhelming so far. And that doesn't even like get to the issue of the the basic injustice of telling Iran that it can't have nuclear weapons, but but Israel gets to, the U.S. gets to, the whole U.S. and the whole world should really be nuclear free. And at least during the Cold War, there was this idea that there was of nonproliferation where 
everyone with nukes decided to reduce their weapons together with the goal of eliminating them. So these very negotiations reflect um, an an asymmetric power dynamic of, of, of American empire. But my question, in some ways, on a very surface level, it's pretty jarring to see Trump tear up the Iran deal and then make this this really substantive Iran deal and then make this really kind of vacuous, even though I'm happy about it, deal with North Korea. But uh, behind the surface level is is the key difference there that there's a this large and extremely potent domestic lobbying and political operation lined up against Iran, which is tied to the perceived interests of our regional allies in Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yes, that's certainly part of it. There are regional dynamics here that are specific to both regions. We've talked about how uh, the South Korean government in particular was eager to uh, have a uh, peace treaty uh, and a relaxation of tensions with the North. Uh, And then in the Middle East, uh, one encounters the anti-Iran lobby, the close U.S. alliance, which Trump has uh, only strengthened uh, with Israel and with the Sunni autocratic allies. Uh, these are forces that have created an antipathy to Iran in the U.S. Uh, that runs deeper than the antipathy to North Korea. Um, you know, let's consider a few other factors as well. Uh, Obama did the Iran deal, but he didn't do a North Korea deal. So Trump, in changing both, has a kind of consistency in being anti-Obama in both cases. And that is the and then now the key, yeah. key politico-ideological thing of significance on the right in the U.S. is anti-Obama pro-Trump. If Trump does it, it's, it's good, as Republican critics of Trump to his left and his right have, have found out. Absolutely. And then we have a cultural factor. Iran is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Islam is increasingly demonized on the right wing, as we know. And culturally, North Korea is more malleable. Uh, True, it's not hard for a U.S. president to turn North Korea into bad guys, but it's also easier to turn North Korea into good guys or decent guys than it is with uh, Iran. Um, I also want to pull back and and note something that interests me here. I mean, Trump is a right-wing hawk, uh, but he stands out for defending the value of talk in international affairs. And he, he did this very explicitly in a speech to the NRA a little while back. I mean, it was remarkable to hear him uh, tout the virtue of talk uh, in international politics. Um, so that might be a good thing, but we should also look under the hood at what Trump means by talk. Uh, And the Singapore summit is a good test when you put it in comparison to the Iran deal. So talk for Trump seems to mean authoritarian style, leader to leader deals. Uh, It's based on personal chemistry, as Trump calls it. Uh, These aren't legalistic agreements. They're not necessarily detailed. They may not be formal treaties. So they may not be built to last beyond the Trump administration if they even make it that far. Um, On the other hand, Trump is willing to have just one short meeting with Kim and declare that, hey, North Korea isn't a threat anymore. It's ludicrous. But it does at least 
make this dramatic step of declaring, hey, look, everything's fine. There actually isn't it. This isn't just, you know, we we actively distrust this enemy, but we've made a deal. And if they can comply, then okay. Obama handled the Iran deal in a very different manner. He made a detailed legalistic agreement, though he couldn't get the votes in the Senate to make it a treaty very significantly. Uh, He never met in person. And unlike Trump, he continued to say that Iran was a threat to American interests uh, and the interests of America's allies across the Middle East. He just defended the deal in a very narrow terms. Uh, He said the deal was just confined to nuclear issues. So that was both a more substantive and a more, in a sense, superficial deal with Iran. The last piece of, of, of Trump's foreign policy that, that I want to, to talk about is that, of course, just before he went off to North Korea, he had a G7 meeting where he insulted many of the other people there, including Canada and Justin Trudeau. And a lot of liberal critics and defenders of the liberal international order, as it's now called, have have really made this a baseline comparison. Trump's embrace of North Korea in the context of his attacks on traditional allies like Canada. And I thought this this tweet from Senator Chris Murray from Connecticut was was uh, representative of the genre. He wrote, Trump wants supporters of diplomacy, like me, to get caught in a trap where we can't criticize Singapore. I call BS. Trump isn't Obama. North Korea isn't Iran. And the context of the G7 disaster matters. The syrupy photo op with Kim on the heels of the brutal treatment of our closest allies at the G7 is an international relations disaster. I'm fine with POTUS talking to our enemies, but not right after you savaged our friends. The message of last 72 hours is clear. If you're a historic U.S. ally, you get humiliated. If you've been a bad actor, you get rewarded, even if you show no meaningful sign of reform. That sends a chill down the spine of any nation asked to help the U.S. in the future. Well, Trump, as usual, behaved boorishly. I mean, it was embarrassing. It should be embarrassing. Yeah. What he says about trade is... A lot of it was inaccurate. A lot of it, even if it had been accurate, would have been nonsensical because he's fixated on trade deficits as if there's a single trade deficit in a certain category uh, of goods, uh, and that's in deficit, then the U.S. is losing vis-a-vis. It's just, you know, really uh, ridiculous. (laughs) So, you know, I I don't disagree uh, with those who say those things, but On the other hand, the question for Trump's opponents is there's a cornucopia of things to object to. Um, What are you going to prioritize among all the things that are objectionable about Trump? And I do worry that hyperventilating about the drama of the G7 uh, is taking the bait. And being mean mean to sweet Justin Trudeau. Exactly. Uh, You know, Trump, as usual, he's got this knack for identifying that Uh, for identifying things that elites care about, but to most people is pretty empty. And actually, even experts, you know, it's not exactly clear what the ultimate importance of the G7 is. So, you know, one sign of the 
damage that Trump actually did at the G7 uh, was uh, came on Monday when the stock markets didn't move after the G7. Uh, so when people have to put money down, they think uh, that that all wasn't very significant. And let's see what actual actions uh, the Trump administration takes on tariffs. Those actions could be worrying, but uh, as the president says, uh, we'll see what happens. Um, so, you know, his childish behavior at the G7 strikes me as, you know, l- less important than issues that uh, affect people's lives more directly, and there are no shortage of those. You know, some things that I think are of real significance. Um, first of all, there's a lost opportunity just from the distraction that Trump created uh, on climate change uh, and other uh, priorities uh, that just doesn't get moved forward uh, when Trump just causes trouble. The other thing is there could be a silver lining in that, you know, the, the G7 is a group of um, great powers and perhaps more discord there could bolster the G20, which is a wider group, uh, represents more people in the world. Uh, and that, that could be constructive moving forward. I also think that we should pay attention. Uh, I'll say you know, Chris Murphy is one of the more active uh, members of Congress when it comes to foreign policy. So I'll, I'll credit him for that. But he reflects a sort of common trend to speak of American allies uh, as if they're always and forever going to be allies uh, and enemies in the same way. They are permanent enemies, uh, as though we're always stuck with this configuration. And it does strike me that Trump is onto something when he questions that. And he asks, what are we getting from these arrangements? What have you done for me lately? Uh, he doesn't do it in the right way at all. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, Trump is probably pointing the way toward how American foreign policy will be in the future here more than statements that assume that relationships rooted in, in prior arrangements are necessarily going to continue in an unquestioned manner. And my last question, following up on that, it would seem like the lefts, as opposed to a left foreign policy, as opposed to a liberal or, or conservative or Trumpian one, would, like Trump, not take the inherent goodness of the so-called liberal international order or our inherited alliances for granted, though, important caveat, Trump has taken the importance of a lot of our inherited alliances and enemies for granted, but... Uh, i.e. Saudi Arabia, Israel, et cetera. Absolutely. But that it would not just question the legitimacy of these alliances and of that order on the basis of naked U.S. self-interest, as Trump at least purportedly does, but rather ask deeper questions about what is in the interest of justice and peace for Americans domestically and for others globally, which is a tough needle to to thread. Both you and I have talked extensively about the urgency of developing left-wing foreign policy institutions, because if we are planning on taking power and winning, winning power anytime soon, then we need just ranks of, of experts who are highly heterodox 
to take up like an enormous number of positions from the top to the middle to the bottom of of the national security state and, and State Department and all of these institutions. And they're just not there. Those don't those people don't exist right now, do they? That's right. And look who you're interviewing right now. You're interviewing a historian. You know, it's not my job to be keeping up with uh, the headlines, I guess, though everyone is these days. Or you're talking to Aziz Rana, uh, who's a law professor. So that goes to show that there are, you know, few, are there any real left foreign policy think tanks that uh, are devoted to formulating alternatives? Um, It's a it's a small bench. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think it would benefit even mainstream folks to have that kind of position to engage with. I think it would sharpen their arguments because their arguments don't seem to be resonating with very much of the public, which just rejected them uh, in the last election. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be it's really an urgent priority to enrich public debate and to develop systematic alternatives for U.S. foreign policy uh, that's different from what's been on offer since at least the 1990s. So if a listener is interested in funding this work, they should totally get in touch. Um, but, you know, you you put it very well. The left is being beaten to the punch by the right, uh, even the center left. Uh, in terms of developing a political vision that connects domestic policy with foreign policy. I mean, that was Trump's whole pitch. That was, in a sense, his innovation. It was that the U.S. was a third world country in his telling that has been exploited by foreigners as well as uh, abetted by the internal traitorous hacks who let it happen. Uh, And that's a message that inherently connects the domestic and the foreign. And uh, the left and you know center liberals alike don't really have any answer to that uh, to that challenge. The the focus has been you know where the energy is uh, so far as I can tell is on domestic issues. Except that immigration, uh, as you've uh, written about very well, that does open the door to a message that can con- uh, connect what America does abroad and what America doesn't do abroad. Uh, with what happens here at home. Well, you heard it here from uh, from Stephen Wertheim. We need communist foreign service officers to be waiting in the wings. So, you know, go to Georgetown, everyone. Um, Stephen Wertheim, thank you very much for coming back on and hope to talk to you soon. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Good to be with you. Wolf cry, agent with a why I'm gonna know it when I play it. It's bigger than Stephen Wertheim is a lecturer in American and international history at Burbeck, University of London, who has written essays on current affairs in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that if the emancipation of working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, How are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Except for this week's outro music, which of course is a remix of Dead Prez's hip-hop with some of my words from here on The Dig. 
It was made by my dear, dear friend Osman Balkin as a surprise wedding gift for me that I heard for the first time on the dance floor last weekend. I love you, Osman. Thanks. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, complete strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Democracy must be curtailed, curtailed, curtailed. And the people, and the people, and the people, and the people must be checked and repressed. They call it, call it, call it.